any good plan needs a, a, a plan B. I'd like to welcome Jonathan Levy to the Productivities Podcast. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you are the author of the latest book that you've got out is The Only Skill That Matters, The Proven Methodology to Read Faster, Remember More, and Become a Super Learner, right? Part of the whole Super Learner series. And f- before we dive into why and what The Only Skill That Matter is, both of those, can you share with my audience a little bit about who you are and how you got into this idea of, you know, really kind of helping people become a super learner because we've had scott young on the show before he's talked about ultra Mm, learning so there's a bit we might even get into the differences between the two but can you dig into a bit of your origin story for me absolutely so growing up i i I was a happy kid uh until i wasn't and uh i never was much of an academic i really struggled in school my first memories of school are of struggling in the classroom and for many many years that was kind of the case. I had a lot of really patient uh, teachers that helped me kind of get by with the ADD and the kind of not not processing and not understanding. Uh, and then along about middle school, it, it became a real problem. In high school, it became a real, real problem, not just in the classroom, but also outside the classroom, learning things like social skills. Uh, so to make a long story short, because I know this is a, a shorter podcast, I struggled with learning for a long time. I was medicated for most of my young adulthood just to be able to sit still in the classroom and uh, and learn. And part of my real obsession with finding better ways around came out of that necessity. So I kind of became obsessed with productivity because I had to work harder to get caught up with other students. And every day I would come home and lock myself in my bedroom till dinner time wolf something down, go back in and lock myself in my bedroom till the end, uh, you know, of the evening when I had to go to bed just to be able to try and catch up. Um, I became more interested in learning when I got into a one year condensed MBA program. And I realized that that technique wasn't going to work because I'd have to network and socialize and go do case studies and travel and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I was very, very fortunate to find a mentor, two mentors actually, who taught me a bunch of accelerated learning, speed reading, and memory. Now on the productivity side, uh, from ages 16 to 22, I ran a business, because you know, if you're not good in the classroom, find something you are good at, and entrepreneurship, fortunately for me, was that thing that I was good at. And I was running this business while going full time to Berkeley, thanks again to medication and working harder than uh, than my peers, I think. And so I had to figure out productivity skills, techniques, and tactics. So I've had this kind of lifelong obsession with both productivity and how do I learn faster. And, and because of where I was with you know, depression and self-hatred and self-esteem and all the things that were a result of not being able to learn quickly, I also have developed really quite a, a, an obsession with optimizing the human experience and improving uh, every aspect of who I am and how I am. So as you're, you're, you're sharing this with me, I know some people, myself included, are, are wondering where, how that drastic shift from struggling 
to, you know, um, almost to superhuman. Wow, the two S's there. To becoming more superhuman with that sort of thing. Is it, how do you find um, harmony between those two? Because I know, like, I'll give you an example in my, my world. And being, like, just, I wouldn't say extreme, but very dedicated or committed to something so much so that it becomes part of the fabric of who you are. Um, for example, when I used to work for the Victoria Film Festival, um, I used to have to, you know, watch movies with a different kind of lens, right? No pun intended. The idea mm -hmm. that I was adjudicating them as opposed to enjoying them. Um, and, and that transferred into other areas of my life, not always in the best ways. Like I couldn't sit and enjoy a movie. Do you, is there a, um, because I think uh, when it comes to this, some people are like, okay, I don't want to be this way all the time. Is it is it something you can just flip on and off if you want? Or how do you find like that that harmony so that uh, it doesn't seem like it's too much or that you become almost too, um, too I don't know how to put this, too, uh, uh, almost too superhuman all the time. I mean, this might be uh, something you're not really... you turn off the yeah. desire to want to optimize everything all the time. That's it. Thank you. Again, a totally <laughs> legitimate question, especially, you know, I, I've spent the last few years, the, the most recent kind of learning challenge that I've overcome was I wasn't able to find a healthy, happy, loving relationship for many, 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 many years. And I recently learned how to do that. And so I'm now happily married. Um, and, and that's a challenge, especially when you're living with other people. And this is definitely a, a challenge in my marriages sometimes it's very hard to turn it off and it's also hard to realize if someone else isn't into uh, that and they don't have that drive to always want to optimize everything, it's probably because they're happy the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And and that's, you know, they're already at the destination. So realizing that in my relations to others is, I have a rule in my relationships, which is I only, uh, my wife and I, we only uh, encourage or push change that is expressly invited uh, and that helps a lot uh, as far as optimizing and being able to turn it off for myself i don't look at it so much as optimizing to become better i just look at it as learning because learning is in my mind always inherently good right right and you could say well learning bad habits but i'm talking learning new things, right. whether it's information or skills. To me, that's always inherently good. So my focus is not necessarily to become a better X, where X is a better real estate investor, a better entrepreneur, a better whatever. My focus is just, how can I learn new things and new skills, personally, professionally, and otherwise? Um, and that takes some of the focus off of like being so results driven all the time. Like mm -hmm. I measure a lot of things about myself. I measure my sleep, I measure my productivity. Uh, but there are certain things that are not quantifiable, and I'm okay with that. And um, or that or I that you also, don't or that you don't need mm -hmm. to because quantitative productivity and qualitative productivity can be two different things, right? Like oh my gosh, yeah. hugely different. So yeah, I, I'm uh, that's that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, and then I think on top of that, there need to be some areas of your life that are just safe. You know, they're mm. they're just. Uh, your respite. So I'll give you a, a funny example. I still obviously have ADD. It doesn't really go anywhere. And no matter how much I meditate, and I meditate a lot, I have this this brain that doesn't want to focus on one thing at a time many, many, many times. So I will do crochet or knitting while I'm on phone calls because I have a lot, you can imagine, living in Israel, my whole team is abroad. I spend a lot of time on Zoom and Skype. And I realized that, you know, it was driving me crazy, but if I can 
have this thing that keeps me busy and, and that I have something to show for it, unlike a fidget spinner or flipping a pen, that that's really good for me. And that's a safe part of my world. Like there's no drive to optimize. There's no performance incentive. There's, there's just, this is a fun thing that I realize is a total waste of, of my time if I do it outside of calls. And sometimes I'll just sit there and crochet or knit because I enjoy it and I find it to be therapeutic. Uh, I think meditation, by the way, is another one. Like mm. I'm all for using tools like Muse. Sometimes I will use Muse as a, I equate Muse, and Ariel Garten is a friend, so I've said this to her as well. I equate Muse to the difference between doing squats with no weight on your back versus doing squats with weight on your back. Right, right. I don't think people should use Muse, and, and I've, again, talked with Ariel about this, and she would agree. The, the goals and points tracking is just there to give you the dopamine boost. It's not there to go, okay, today my meditation has to be better than tomorrow. Right. You know, the mo moment you associate achievement with meditation, you're kind of missing the point altogether. <laughs> and so that's another example of like something that I think should just be holy mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. and, I, and that's not true of all forms of meditation. Like if, if yoga is your thing, yeah, it's a really great thing to say, you know, next week I'm going to be able to hold this position for longer. Uh, but I think there need to be some things in your life that are sacred. Well, and interestingly, I have amused myself. I have still a version one. And I, I, I always talk about like the device looking like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Star Trek, the next generation, but it was like that episode where Wesley Crusher, everyone got this game and they were all trying to win the game and the way that you won the game by getting the discs into the, into the hoops was to just let go. And then the game kind of played yep. itself. I'm like, that's exactly what Muse is. Don't try to get the, don't try to listen to the birds. You try to listen to the birds or you try to make the, then they won't show up. So it's one of those interesting, uh, and I love it. I mean, there, and, but you're right. I think that, um, and Sarah Lewis talks about this in the rise and the idea of archery and stuff like that. Like the idea of, um, it's, you are kind of, um, the only person in your way is yourself, right? You know what I mean? Like there's no, it's not like, uh, archery. You've got somebody necessarily that's getting, trying to block you from the target, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like the targets yeah. in front of you. You just need to get that craft down so that you can do that. And, and one of the things that you talk about in your book is information overload, which I guess would impede, I guess I know would impede the ability for you to kind of, um, be able to learn uh, or at least be able to learn effectively right out of the gate. Um, can you touch on the filtration aspect? Cause I think that's gotta be part of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a challenging one. It's probably the most challenging one. People ask me this all the time, like, okay, cool. I, you know, I read 700 or so words a minute. How do I choose what to read? And I think a big part of it is, is wisdom of the crowds and social proof, right? So I, look at reviews before I pick up a book. I really, I mean, I interview someone on my podcast every week. I get a lot of book recommendations and I really weigh the credibility of the people that I'm talking to and, and how many times a book will come up when it comes to blog posts, you know, there, there's also, there's votes, there's claps. And I rely pretty heavily on that because I think if something has sustained and survived kind of the brutality of, of, critics everywhere. That's valuable. I also really look to things that have sustained the test of time. I try to get my information from books as opposed to blogs or newspapers, because I feel that if something has gone through the whole process and is important enough to have been published in a 200 or 300 page book, uh, it's, 
it's probably a, a bigger and more relevant source of information for me. Now, right. That might be different if I was, uh, you know, uh, um, if I was a stockbroker and analyzing financial reports, I would want the most recent, most dated information. But uh, those are a couple criteria that I really look at. And then I think people also need to shed their um, guilt around how they consume information. So there's kind of two sources of, in, of guilt around information. One is, you know, you have this guilt because you aren't consuming enough, but I, I actually encourage people to be on a lower information diet, right? Like yep. information is a lot like, like nutrition, right? Higher quality and less is much better than more. Even if the more is of, of you know, okay quality, go for high quality and go for less. Read books, not blogs. Watch documentaries, not YouTube videos. You kind of get the idea. Right. And and, um, and the other kind of sense of guilt is people go, well, I started this book, I better finish it. And then they get stuck in a book. Mm-hmm. If you don't like a book, if, you, if you're not loving a book, if you're not finding the value in it, drop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because there's nothing more demotivating and and I can tell you this from really from the neuroscientific perspective like your brain is not going to learn something that you don't find value in it's just it's very tricky well and the other thing is is again that's why uh, it leads to other better decisions right like for example if you find that you're willing to give up reading a book let's say then you may not necessarily go buy books ad hoc you'll be like you know what maybe I should use my library a bit more or maybe I should use the service like scribe which is like you know, whatever, nine bucks yep. a month, as opposed to buying a new hardcover book, or even a, a tool like Blinkist, where you can kind of do. And I mean, I get I guess I come from that age where you walk into an HMV, and listen to the CD on the wall for the whole album, instead of just the single to see if I want to buy the whole album, uh, if you know, based on the single that I heard on the radio. Blinkist is kind of like that. Hey, I can read, you know, I can kind of get a sense of whether or not the book is going to be right for me. And, and if it's not, then I'll just not bother doing it. And Clay Johnson talked about this in the information diet as well, which was a great book. You talked about timelessness, right? You talked about the idea of, and Ryan Holiday's talked about this in the book Perennial Seller. Um, uh, you know, one of the books that I love around time management and productivity, which Cal Newport introduced me to, you can get on archive.org or Gutenberg, and it's called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day by Arnold Bennett, where you see the same principles like you talked about Mm -hmm. apply now as they did over a hundred years ago. I want to talk about the, the planning process because we're talking like what I just said was kind of like, okay, you go into this with this idea of, okay, this is how I want to approach you know, pulling information or figuring out what to learn. Can you talk about planning? Because I think that, you know, there's that quote uh, by Eisenhower that says, you know, when I, when I go into battle and I'm paraphrasing here, I find that planning is useful, but plans are useless. Can you touch on that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, when it comes to learning, planning is such a really important thing. And I I talk about this in the only skill that matters uh, at length. I do a whole chapter just on this idea of preparing to learn uh, because I think there are a lot of questions that you need to ask when you sit down to learn something and, and some of them are known, you know, Tim Ferriss is known for deconstructing and, and asking questions like, how can I break this down and what units can I learn it in? But there are also some questions I think that aren't asked enough. For example, what am I learning this for? And to what extent do I need to learn it? Right? Because if I'm right. learning piano to become a virtuoso concert pianist, it's going to be very different 
and a very different process and very different goal setting and very different milestones and just everything about it is going to be different than if I'm learning piano to be able to jam with my buddies on Friday nights. And so I think you have to ask that question and then exactly as you said, you have to have a plan in place. And you know, they say like uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. I, I would take that one step further, which is failing to plan to fail is <laughs> confuse myself, but it, it's, it's really uh, planning to fail because we're human. Right. We're all human, and any good plan needs a a, a plan B, right, to get right. back on track. And I, I learned this when I was working with Annie Hyman Pratt, who was uh, the CEO who grew coffee bean and tea leaf to what it is today and sold it. And when she has you plan a project with your team, it's a built-in part of the project. Like, what am I going to do when we inevitably don't hit a milestone or when the client changes their, you know, spec? And, and I think that's really, really important when it comes to learning as well because something will happen. Something will come up. You will forget, you know, your, your – index cards one day when you go on vacation and then you'll be off by a week. You will have internet problems and you won't get to meet with your Russian tutor. Whatever it is, there will be milestones. And far too many times, we're all subject to you know what psychologists lovingly call the what the hell effect, which mm. is, ah, oh, well, I missed one workout, might as well miss another one. <laughs> Whereas we know that missing two workouts is so much worse but it's so much easier to fall down that slippery slope, especially when it comes to learning, right? I fell off the wagon. I used to practice piano every single day, and then I missed a day, and a day became a week. So having a plan in place, how am I going to close that gap, is super important. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make, or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it, and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. All right, we're going to take a break from the conversation, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Jonathan's thoughts and research on speed reading because I think that's an important element that he brings to the table. And now I want to share with you some of what our sponsors bring to the table. Now more than ever, we need people with the right skills to support our communities, especially the frontline workers who provide resources and care for those most in need. To help, LinkedIn is offering free job posts for healthcare and essential service organizations that need to quickly fill critical roles with the people who help us all. If you are hiring for one of these organizations, 
job posts on LinkedIn can help you quickly find the right people for your front line. And LinkedIn jobs saves you time and time is of the essence when you're trying to find the right person for the right position, the position you're looking for. LinkedIn can help you find frontline workers from its active community of over 675 million members. LinkedIn job screens candidates for the skills and experience you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified people who meet your requirements. That way you can find the right person to quickly fill critical roles. To post a healthcare or essential service job for free, or if you're in another industry and have hiring needs, visit linkedin.com slash timecrafting. That's linkedin.com slash timecrafting. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's linkedin.com slash timecrafting. Check out what LinkedIn jobs can offer you today. When running a business, HR issues can absolutely kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. And from onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. I know I didn't. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. All you need to do is go to Bambi.com slash timecrafting right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash timecrafting. Spelled Bam to the B-E-E dot com slash timecrafting. Seriously, go to Bambi.com slash timecrafting right now and schedule your free HR audit today. Okay, now I want to talk to you about a service I've been using for a while and I want to share with you some of the task management tools that you can get through this service. What is this service called? It's called Setapp. Setapp was founded by MacPaw, the company behind other popular Mac apps, including Clean My Mac and Gemini. And the service has grown in terms of number of users, software vendors, and apps available since launch. Setapp packs over 180 high quality apps into one. There's an app for almost any task, so you can stay in your flow, and finish what you started. It's also a great value at just $9.99 a month. So instead of paying thousands for separate licenses, there's just one flat monthly fee. New apps are always being added to Setup. Updates are free and all the apps are full featured pro versions. And Setup has a dedicated curation team that only selects the highest quality apps. Now let's talk about the task management app selection that Setup has. There's to-do, there's Eon Timeline, there's Be Focused, Busy Cal, Busy Contacts, there's Good Task, there's Instacal, Task Paper, Timing, there are, that's just the task management apps. Then there, we, if we want to go into personal finance, there's Chronicle, there's Home Inventory, there's Money Whips, there's, Money Whips, there's Gig Economy. Productivity apps on their own include other apps such as Commander One, there's Default Folder X, you know, there are so many apps that you can explore with Setup, and I encourage you to check it out. You don't have to spend time on app discovery and testing with Setup. 
setup makes it easy to get the best tools when you need them they're already in setup so what i want you to do is check out setup right now go to setup.com and give setup a try for free again it it's it's really it's a subscription for mac apps that no mac user should be without so again visit setup.com check it out for free for seven days you'll be glad you did now let's get back to my conversation with jonathan levi here on the productivityist podcast let's talk about setting things up so that you can start to you know take advantage and leverage the only skill that matters um and we talked about planning and and when we talk about productivity and time management i one of the things i do is theme my days and i theme my time pretty pretty i wouldn't say um i wouldn't say religiously but i'm very good about saying okay this is what my day looks like and here's some hours of the day that are supposed to do this kind of thing like for example today we're recording this fittingly on my listening day so i do all my podcast mm -hmm. stuff on my listening day how do how does someone if they want to start to you know read faster remember more and and kind of become that super learner how how should they get started in terms of you know in in a digestible you know way that's not going to do the very thing you don't want it to do which is overwhelm them yeah. Well, the first thing, you know, I, I was trained in speed reading three times before it actually stuck. And I think a big part of the reason was it's very easy to teach people speed reading. Uh, it's a lot harder to learn comprehension and right. to learn how to store and memorize all of that information. So the first thing we teach in all of our courses, all of our programs, all of my books, anywhere you see me teach this, the first thing we teach is visual memory and, and how to implement the exact same memory techniques that are being used by world record holders and memory champions. And yes, that is a, a real thing. There is such a thing as the world memory championship, mm -hmm. which is pretty wild for a lot of people uh, to, to first hear about. But there is, and you can do exactly these same things and you can learn how to store information significantly faster and more reliably if you tap into your visual memory. I always joke with people, I say, you know, have you ever wished that you had a, a visual or eidetic or photographic memory? And they go, gosh, yeah, and I go, congrats, you do. You just don't know how to use it yet. Right. Uh, so that's really the first step. So let's let's dive into, as we get close to wrapping up, uh, the the kind of the pivotal point where people all this, like where, where it can kind of flip the switch for them. When all of a sudden, like you said, you know, uh, would you like to have photographic memory? And I think um, Cal Newport touches on this. I want to say in deep work with um, is it the is it Moonwalking with Einstein? I think is the one mm -hmm. that that talks about it. Um, the idea of okay, where where is that pivot point where all of a sudden? And maybe share your story where it was like, okay, this is when you knew that hey, this is it. Like I'm I'm now this. I'm I'm now able to tap into this. Um, more readily than I was before. Is there a specific point in the journey where you feel people will be like, oh, there it is, now, now I can do this, or does it vary? Like, And if, if there is a common spot, I'd love for you to share that with my audience so they can go, oh, because a lot of people don't love the, the marathon idea of this, because like productivity, this is kind of a lifestyle change. It's not a quick fix, it's it not is, a yeah. diet, right? Yeah, absolutely, and you know, we, we teach a 10-week course that's our entire kind of program, our, our masterclass. 
and just the memory component we spend four weeks on. And part of the reason for that is people are busy. People don't come to me because they have extra time. <laughs> right. They, they come to me because they are very, very busy. And so we break things down into 20 minutes a day, four days a week. I mean, we make it really simple for folks. With that said, recently we put out a five-day memory mastery course, which is 20 minutes for five days in a row. And we've seen incredible results for people. So you can learn the memory component of this very, very quickly. And once you do, you'll be able to do just simply incredible feats of memory. I wish the same were true for speed reading. Mm. Unfortunately, it is not speed reading. It takes many uh, weeks of diligent practice before people can get their comprehension to really uh, pick up. So yeah, that anyone who tells you I'll teach you to speed read in 10 minutes or half a day, unfortunately not true. Let's talk about speed reading as the final question because uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to get a little bit, let's say contentious here because there's been a lot of people, and we, the aforementioned Ryan Holiday actually talks about like the idea of speed reading and why, you know, it's not necessarily a skill that we should shoot for because, you know, often information can get filtered out or lost along the way. Um, you've probably seen a lot of articles on it. If you're reading, it, I mean, totally. although maybe not, although maybe not, because you say you don't read a lot of articles, you read books. <laughs> <laughs> I do but, about, about my own industry. Uh, same, sure. same here, same here. So can you touch on that? Because I think that there will be some people out there that go, well, I've heard that speed reading isn't necessarily all that. So can you kind of dis discuss that and maybe either, I mean, I don't know, I, for me, I would think that it's it's about being selective, but let's hear what you have to say. Yeah, so there is a lot of research disproving speed reading um, and, and some very, very notable studies and, and macro studies. All of these studies disprove speed reading by determining that really human beings can only read at around 600 words per minute max with 100% comprehension and maybe around 750 with 80% comprehension. Uh, interestingly enough, when I say speed reading, that's what we're talking about. Mm. We're talking about 600 words per minute. Um, and that exact same research that disproves some of these wild claims of 2,000 words per minute, 5,000 words per minute photo reading, it does that by demonstrating what the world's fastest readers do. Uh, I guess for, for the researchers, three times faster than the average human being, which is around 600 to 700 words per minute. That's not considered speed reading, but to us, that is speed reading. Now, uh, to say that, you know, it's a flip switch type situation that you can just learn the skill and you'll always be able to do it, it nothing could be further from the truth. Right. One, it's kind of like walking on your hands. In fact, in my book, I call it walking on your hands as, as a metaphor because no matter how trained you are to walk on your hands, and I can do a good 40, 50 meters on my hands. It's always going to be easier to walk on your feet. The same is true of speed reading. Uh, it is one of those things that you can do in bursts uh, for an hour or so, but it's taxing, it's exhausting, and it's never going to be really second nature. So I like to remind my students that speed reading is a tool, a specific tool for a specific scenario where you want maximum information in minimum time, whereas the memory techniques are really kind of, as you said, a full operating system upgrade, completely changing the way that your brain works. And, and I've said that for many, many years, but now I can actually say literally at the neurological level, changing the way your brain works. In fact, some really interesting 
uh, studies have actually proven that the memory techniques, same memory techniques we teach in our programs, rewire the way the brain works. So um, that's a bit of a tangent, but speed reading is, a, is definitely a tool. There's never been any evidence. In fact, there's a pretty significant body of evidence against 5,000, 2,000, uh, you know, photo reading, all that kind of stuff. I've never seen any evidence to prove that people can actually do it. Uh, but I've seen, and actually we have uh, some pretty interesting, like we've analyzed the research for people on our website. And if people want to go to superhumanacademy.com slash science, uh, they can check out a full report. We actually hired an Oxford trained neuroscientist to audit all of our materials and just post on the front page of our website. Like this has been proven. This is not yet proven. Uh, all that kind of thing. Jonathan, this has been a fantastic conversation. And the best part is, is that whenever I talk to somebody about their book, they're like, I still need to pick, like, they didn't really go into the book too terribly. Like, it, I mean, they went into it, but I need <laughs> to pick up the book. And that's one of the things I want to do whenever I talk to someone about their book is I've had a chance to go through it. Um, it's, you know, I am fascinated by learning. Um, one of the the daily things I try to do is I have, I have what I call my minimum viable productive day. And one of those things is, I call it my daily waves because it's the acronym waves, write audio, video, exercise, and study. And learning is a part of that study component. That's fantastic. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, between the work that Scott Young's done with ultra learning, which I will uh, link to in the show notes as well, because it's a relevant podcast topic. We've had some people talk about mnemonics and, and memory before. It's just something I'm really into. And I know, I know there is a direct correlation between, you know, having those skills and then upping your productivity as a result. So I want to thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, the book is called The Only Skill That Matters, The Proven Methodology to Read Faster, Remember More, and Become a Super Learner. But you, but I know you want to send people somewhere else as well. So uh, could you share with my audience where they can keep up with you and your work? Yeah, I would love if folks go to superhumanacademy.com. That's uh, where my podcast is, courses. You can pick up a copy of the book. Uh, we've got all different kinds of like free trials and you can really dive deep with me and go down the rabbit hole of optimizing the human experience. Jonathan, thanks again for joining me today on the Productivity is Podcast. <laughs>